teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. So I'm always collecting these stories, but I always have to do a little discernment and make sure that I don't tell the wrong kind of story to the wrong kind of crowd. And one of the stories that categories or buckets I throw these things in is, is, is a bucket just for men. So I wouldn't do this kind of story with families that were involved. So this is, this is all humorously intended. It's not my story, but it's a story that I found. So this Honk If You Love Jesus bumper sticker used to be a big, big deal. And this is one of the stories that's related to this, uh, written by a woman. The other day, I went up to a local Christian bookstore and saw a Honk If You Love Jesus bumper sticker. I was feeling particularly sassy that day because I had just come from a thrilling choir performance, so I bought the sticker and put it on my bumper. Boy, I'm glad I did. What an uplifting experience followed. I was stopped at a red light at a busy intersection, just lost in thought about how good the Lord was to me. I didn't notice that the light had changed. It's a good thing someone else loves Jesus because if he hadn't honked, I never would have noticed. I found that lots of people love Jesus. While I was sitting there, the guy behind me started honking like crazy. And then he leaned out of his window and screamed, For the love of God, go, go, go! What an exuberant cheerleader he was for Jesus. Everyone started honking. I just leaned out my window, started waving and smiling at all these loving people. I even honked my horn a few times to share in the love. There must have been a man from Florida back there because I heard him yelling something about a sunny beach. I saw a guy waving in a funny way with only one finger sticking in the air, and I asked my teenage son, who was in the car with me, what that meant. He said it was probably a Hawaiian good luck sign or something. Well, I've never met anyone from Hawaii, so I leaned out the window and gave him the good luck sign back. <laughs> a couple of people were caught up in the joy of the moment so that they got out of their cars and started walking towards me. I bet they wanted to pray or ask what, what church I intended, but this is when I noticed that the light changed. So I waved to all my sisters and brothers grinning and drove on through the intersection. I noticed that I was the only car that got through the intersection before the light changed. I felt kind of sad that I had to leave them all after we had all the love that we shared. So I slowed the car down, leaned out the window, and gave them all the Hawaiian good luck sign one last time as I drove away. It's difficult as a theologian to try to decipher a real experience like that. But one thing I do know is, as funny as it is in our context of just men, that the reality of trying to decipher God in the routine of our daily life is a lot easier. One of the things I do know for sure, that when God makes his word clear, then we can be for certain how to see him apply even the details of our routine and glorifying him and enjoying his presence in our life. The issue of clarity when God brings his word into our routine is always a constant whenever I look at the word of God. So as you go through your week 
this week, even today. Think about God's word and what has been made clear to you, not guesswork, not about feelings or emotions, not about an episode that might just be all subjective to us. But when the word of God makes itself clear, then we can apply it and act according to what God has made known to us. I'd like to suggest to you very strongly that as we think about clarity in the word of God, there's a life of a particular prophet in the Bible that probably epitomizes that better than anyone else. In fact, not only does he epitomize the idea of God's word being clear to us, he is probably one of the best-known prophets of the entire Bible. If you were to go out and take a, just a general survey in the streets and ask someone, name a prophet that is identified in the Bible, many people would probably list Elijah. But one of the things about this um, particular prophet named Elijah is not only was he clear with regard to the word of God, but he was stunningly courageous and amazingly influential as a life of a person who is one of that weird class of people where God lifts an individual out of normal society. They act a little weird, they dress a little weird, and they certainly talk a little bit odd. That's what we usually think about prophets. We admire them from a distance, but boy, don't ever ask me to be considered as one of the prophets of God. Those are oddballs. I appreciate them, but I don't want to be like that whatsoever. Before we ever come to a conclusion like that on the basis of the life of someone like Elijah, let's pay a little bit more attention to his life as God reveals it to all of us. One of the things that Elijah was called in by God to deal with was not just to be a flamboyant, attention-calling individual. It's exactly the opposite of what a prophet is supposed to do. It's not about drawing attention to himself. Instead, it's about his life drawing a line in the sand about an issue that God says, this is too critical for it to go on any longer. Think about that. A prophet is a life of a man that God sends into a situation where God says, no longer, no more, things have to change. Here's a line in the sand, and it cannot be crossed again. Not so much about how odd he looked, how odd he behaved, how oddly he dressed, or how oddly he even ate. It's about him knowing that the word of God clearly given to him. Now he acts in amazing obedience. So Baal was the problem of the day. It was a false god. And in this particular situation, of the five or six episodes in the life of Elijah, all of them dealt with the challenge of this false god. Baal was the official deity of the protector of the country of Tyre, right there by the Mediterranean Sea. And Baal, the worship of Baal, had two champions in the forms of human beings those who had risen to the highest level of governing the lives of other people, Ahab and Jezebel. If you've, ever never, if you've never ever known anything about Jezebel other than it's a pejorative or a floozy, well, this is one of those biblical lessons to give you the background of why this woman rose to such high levels of recognition and also with this infamous reputation. She was one of the champions of the worship of a false religion where the god Baal was the center. 
In 1 Kings 18, in all these verses here, they point to Jezebel as the primary enemy of Yahweh or the God of Israel, the one true God that we, as Gentile believers, also put our faith in, Jehovah, God, or the God of the Bible. The God of the nation of Israel did not change, nor was he ever replaced when it came to us Gentiles coming on the scene. The same God who was the center for Israel is the same God of the Bible that we worship today. Baal and the God of the Bible were at odds. Not because there was any competition, but simply because when human beings are left to their own imagination, they always come up with a false deity that is opposed to God, reinforces their own personal sin, and allows them to move further and further away from what righteousness and truth is all about. Pay careful attention to that distinction, gentlemen, because as God allows the world to continue to spin, he trusts us men to take on the responsibility of championing our faith for our wife, for our children, for our friends, for our influenced workers at the office place. If we're not married, the lives of every human being that comes within the circumference of our influence. God wants us to be the influence in the lives of those people, no matter who they are. For him, not for false religions, not for false gods. Real men have a discernment that God gives to them, and when they come to faith, God enhances that discernment so that we in our courage, we in our strength, will defend what is right from an eternal standpoint. Not saying, oh, we'll just be pleasant and nice to all other options. You don't have to choose mine as long as you choose something. That kind of compromise has no place in the lives of those who follow the one true king. Now when we look at the life of Elijah and the problems here with all that false worship, one of the most amazing things about it is as famous and as well-known as Elijah is, there are really only six episodes in his life in the Bible. That's it. You can distill Elijah's life down to six episodes. Now think about your life. However old you are, however many decades you've lived, however many decades you have left to live, how many episodes so far would define who you are? As I look at my life now, uh, more lived and left to live, I'm asking myself, God, if you were to identify my life with the episodes that describe what I've been able to do faithfully, hopefully, for your namesake, what would they be? I get a little nervous that I can't think of too many. Elijah really didn't have that many. He only had six. Well, let's look at what those six were. The prophecy of a coming drought, that this world in which he lived and the country in which he was in, roaming in the region in which he lived, where Ahab and Jezebel lived and were carrying on their sinful rule, Elijah came and pronounced that there was a drought that would come upon the land. The second thing that happened was his great famous episode and event that he's probably best known for, and that is the battle on the top of Mount Carmel. When he, alone against all the prophets of Baal and the Asherahs, when they had this competition of whose God would perform on the basis of the entreaty by the prophets that represented that deity. Elijah 
stood alone and won. Third episode in his life is when he runs from Jezebel after the greatest victory, after winning the Super Bowl, after winning a national championship. A woman frightened him so much that he ran away from his victory lap. It's an amazing phenomenon, gentlemen, when a man who can be a man's man is successful, and then a woman sneers at him, and he gets afraid, and he runs. Cowardice in the life of a man who wants to be a man's man is not uncommon. We gentlemen, we all face fears. And it's amazing how God deals with Elijah's life when he deals with this fearful moment in his life. Fourth thing is Naboth's vineyard. When the greedy king could have whatever he wanted, try to pick on an individual with what little he had, God sent in Elijah to speak the words of truth with clarity and courage. Fifth, Ahaziah's judgment. This is one of those great moments, again, in the life of Elijah when he spoke the word of God with clarity and courage. And finally, probably the second best known thing about Elijah is how his life ended. One of the very few people in the Bible whose life ended without ever dying, as far as what we know. So those are the six episodes in the life of Elijah. Very simply, six simple chapters would not be a long biography whatsoever. And when we look at the life of Elijah, this is the route that he traveled throughout his time in Israel. He started off with... My uh, laser doesn't work on the H screen. Well, technological issue. Well, that's very simple. He, he starts off here, and this particular map tracks uh, the life of Elijah, where he went through his six various episodes, and it's fun to see what's going on in his life. One of the things that I want to do with the life of Elijah this morning is to remind you about something that was probably the most important feature in the life of this great prophet. Not because he was odd-looking, not because he ate odd food, not because he stood up against so many courageously like only one in his entire lifetime could possibly be done. He wasn't so special that none of us could ever possibly think of being someone like him. Instead, there's something wrapped up in the first episode of the life of Elijah that should remind us that we all have a connection with this great, courageous prophet. If you have your Bibles, you can turn into 1 Kings 17 or just look up here on the board. I've, I've got the scriptures up here that I'm going to be reading, and I've highlighted certain features of it that, to me, stand out with an amazing emphasis. The yellow highlights are just a moments in the episode of the life of Elijah that are worth paying attention to. But the words in our, that are hot pink are the words that strike out and say to me, God is trying to teach us a lesson here, not just about an individual who lived a long time ago, but he's reminding all of us, especially men, that there is something we have in common with the life of a man like Elijah. As powerful as a prophet as he is, as he was, God wants to remind us that all of us men can have the same connection with what drove this life from out of something that was a hidden anonymous life into a greatness that was spiritually turning, pivotal for the nation of Israel. First Kings 17. 
Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You will notice that Elijah uses the name of God in a very repetitious and dominant way that repeats itself from Genesis to the Revelation. In our English Bibles, and it's one of the reasons I highlighted it, is you see that he uses the name of God, Lord, with all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the English representation of the Hebrew name of God for Yahweh or Jehovah. It's used in Scripture and introduced to us in the book of Genesis for the first time. And whenever that name of God is used, it refers to the God who makes promises and keeps all the promises that he has made. That is a characteristic of who God is. And if we worship that God, and he has made promises to us, he's given us directives, you can count on the fact that if he makes that promise, he will keep it. God has never, ever let any of his words fall to the ground. He's never forgotten a promise. He's never gone back on a promise. He's 100% consistent with the promises that he has made. And that's represented in that name, Lord. The combination of the names of God repeats itself also because you see the next name for God is God. Capital G, little o, little d. It's also introduced to us in the book of Genesis. And the two terms themselves are amazing because this term for God is the name Elohim, the most common name for God. And commonness sometimes makes people say, well, it's nothing special. But it is something special because when it was introduced for the very first time in the scriptures, it was introduced by the name Elohim as the one who created everything in six days. And the God of creation had the power to create everything that we see, our earth, the life, the universe, the stars, the planets, the solar systems. The amazing phenomenon that God created that out of nothing. He just spoke a word and it all came into being. That's how powerful and great our God is. So whenever I see these two words, these two names of God put together like it's here, it's stunning. The God who makes promises and keeps them juxtaposed to the God who can create anything out of nothing. Now that's an amazing phenomenon because if God makes a promise and we say, man, how in the world can God make a, keep a promise like that? Don't worry because he's not only the God of promises, He's also the God of Elohim, the God who can create out of nothing in order to make his promises come true. Now, that's Elijah's faith. This is the God that he tells Ahab, I am here and I serve this God. Now, one of the amazing things about this is God calls Elijah into service. So the word spoken to Elijah, he obeys it. And also, as a representative of God, as the one who speaks the words of God, he says, this drought will come and will only abate at my word. As God's representative, my word, like his word to me, that is clear. No bumper stickers, no misinterpretation on the basis of my experience or emotion, but based totally and clearly upon what God has made real in his word. Then he says here in verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. 
after he makes this declaration to Ahab, he's not even introduced. He's not given any kind of fanfare. He just blows in on the scene. Not any kind of background of his dad, his mom, his childhood. Doesn't say anything about whether he was living in a life of, of difficulty and a life of challenge. He wasn't dysfunctional. We just don't know any of that. He just blows in the scene as an individual who believes that he is called by God because the word of God came to him. Now, gentlemen, it doesn't really matter whether or not you have credentials as a spiritual leader. You don't even have to go to seminary, but we would like you to. It'll help a lot. (laughs) But you don't have to. If you believe in the word of God and God has made clear to you from his word truth about how he wants you to live and be influential in the lives of other people, just do it. Don't worry about your past. Don't worry about any of the sins that Jesus Christ has forgiven. That's why he forgave them, so you don't have to worry about them. Today, as you live your life, what is God's clear word to you? Who in the world would walk into the presence of the king, Ahab, and just announce a prophecy from Almighty God? No fanfare, no protocol, nothing. A man deeply feared because of his wife Jezebel was vicious with the lies of anybody who was an enemy to her husband. No human being, especially no man, has the courage to think about that without getting jelly in his knees. That does not exist for Elijah because he believed in the Lord God whom he serves. Now, if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you theologically that you have that in common with Elijah. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this title, more than any other title, fits what God wants you to be doing today, this week, and for your entire life. You are the servant of the Most High God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The fear that comes from facing whomever God places in your life does not take precedence over that, not even in the slightest. Gentlemen, if we cower from what we know God wants us to do out of fear, we have more faith in what we fear than we have in the faith of who gave us eternal life. Elijah demonstrates this. He has probably far less education than any of you who are here, far less earthly resources than any of you here, far less capacity than many of you here from the standpoint of IQ and life experience and capacity to perform. But the one thing he had that God says, this is what I want you to know more than anything else. He believed that I am a God of my word and I am the God of all power and I have called this man to speak on my behalf. You're going to be running into human beings today and all during this week and for the rest of your life that I and every pastor will never even have a chance to meet, let alone to speak to. But you become God's spokesman for him to those lives. Get your mind and your heart around that, gentlemen, and realize that there's a courage that God has given to us to speak on his behalf. So the scripture goes on here and keeps repeating these things about God speaking and Elijah listening and over and over again, it's God's word and God makes it clear and 
Elijah has no problem understanding when God speaks to him. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here and turn eastward and hide in Kiriath Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you. You see the constant nature of God speaking, God giving orders. Words matter when it comes to the Almighty God, not only when he speaks to his servants like this prophet long ago, but just as much to any of us who pick up the Bible, God's word, and we read it, and we understand what God is saying. Now that we understand it, God expects just one thing, that we would live what he has told us to do. The word of God made clear. Not by bumper stickers, not by emotions, not by fear, but just by clear understanding of the word of God as it comes to us. Now look at verse 5. So he, that is Elijah, did what the Lord told him. Now in the, the grammar of the scripture, and this Old Testament was written in Hebrew, this is a repetitious part about what storytelling is all involved in. It repeats the emphasis that's critical. You notice that God spoke and Elijah thought about it. God spoke and Elijah thought, well, this is a good idea. I'll give it some consideration. God spoke and Elijah thought, well, I wonder what other options I have to live my life. God spoke and I thought, well, I'll check my computer to see if I've got time to do what God wants me to do. There is a simplicity and a clarity. Again, that word clarity comes into play. He did what God the Lord told him to do. Immediate obedience is the only obedience that's here in the word of God. Not when it's convenient, not when we feel like it, not when it's convenient to our calendar. God speaks. We understand. We do. So he did what the Lord, and he went to Kiriath Ravine, and notice here that he did what God told him to do, hide. That's not outside the God's, God's will sometimes for us to, to hide, to take a break. And he stayed there. And in verse 6, I don't know why we as believers who have the word of God can read this and not just wretch at this whole idea. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. It wasn't a T-bone steak cooked from Taste of Texas at medium rare. Gentlemen, I can promise you that. I mean, what human being would not put themselves in this situation and look at this Meat brought by a raven. Ravens are carnivorous, and what they do is they eat food that's dead. They, they, they pick up and clean up anything that's died and, and rotting out there. That's what God designed them for. And so these ravens, ordered by God, well, I guess we're going to share this with Elijah. So roadkill, number one, brought to Elijah, and Elijah doesn't smell it. He doesn't think about it. He just realized, wow, the God of creation brings these ravens a command, and even the birds obey immediately. The oddity of this is phenomenal. There were no ravens who brought in those burritos this morning, none. Those were handsome, capable, skillful, gifted chefs in the kitchen here at Houston's First. 
But I, I, I think about this, and I try to, if, I, if there's ever a place that I want to speed read, it's here. I don't even want to think about what those ravens brought Elijah. And the amazing thing was, God told him, I will do this, and you will eat what the ravens bring you. And Elijah did what the Lord said. Gentlemen, it's not always pleasant from the comfort of how we want to live our lives. Well, phenomenally, it's, a, it's an amazing deal here when we think about the life of Elijah and him living. Uh, there's no introduction. He delivers this tremendous oracle to, to Ahab, and Elijah travels down to an area outside of Ahab's jurisdiction to hide God's miraculous provision through these through these ravens and a and a stream that's running with clear, cool water for him to drink while the rest of the nation's under drought. But in this miracle business of the life of how he lives, it's stunning to me that God is not inconsistent with what he does. And when the brook finally dries up, he doesn't say, God, you said I could drink out of this brook. And, and now it's dried up. Man, what are you going to do? Who would ever insult God who's just done this miraculous provision? Well, of course the creek is dried up. You pronounced the drought. So now it's catching up. But it doesn't mean that God's not going to change his plan. That's exactly what he does. Not only is God clear, but whenever God comes up with a situation, he's also going to be consistent. Never, ever finding himself with circumstances that disrupt what his original command is. When God changes the provision with regard to methodology or delivery, it doesn't mean God's being inconsistent. In fact, it means just the opposite. God is consistent with all his provisions. There's once a child who went up to his dad and he says, Dad, where in the world do you, how are people born anyway? You know, how did it all happen? The father smiled and says, oh, it's easy, son. There's a man that God created named Adam and a wife that he created named Eve. They made a baby and they made more babies. and Those babies grew up and, and they had babies. That's where we came from. Oh, that's really something. So this little boy wanders over to, to his mom and says, Mom, where, where, where did we come from as people? He says, well, we started off as monkeys and then we evolved from there and after the evolution got to a certain level, that's, that's where we as human beings came from. And this little child was confused, and he ran back to his dad and says, Dad, you lied. And the father looked down at the little boy, and he smiled and says, No, I did not lie. I told you the truth. Your mom, she was speaking about her side of the family. <laughs> Remember that as we go into Thanksgiving. One of the phenomenal things to me about humor, which I love humor, is you're led up to a particular point by who's ever telling the joke, and you think that this is an impossible situation to get out of. How in the world can you get out of this? And there's a consistent answer, and that's why we all laugh. But amazingly, God does the same thing. Elijah, go over to this brook and stay there. The ravens will feed you, and the water will come, and you can drink out of the brook. God never says how long he wants him to be there. But it happens consistently enough that Elijah says, wow, God's an amazing God. Now the ravens stop coming and the brook dries up. 
God, where's your word? Suddenly we force our timetable upon God's provisions and we are tempted to think God is being inconsistent. So we got to wait for the punchline. And so God now sends Elijah to this amazing widow in this particular long passage of scripture with the miracle of the widow is the same thing that God did. God's going to provide for Elijah food to eat and water to drink until the day comes when God's plan is going to come to full fruition. And when we go, we don't have time to go through this story, but it's phenomenal. I did the same thing with the highlighting of the words. The yellow are the events with regard to the amazing things that happened. And then the bright pink is a re-emphasis of its repetition through the story. It's not about Elijah being an amazing, incredible prophet, which he was. It's not that we have to say, well, that was Elijah. Don't bother me with that. I'm not going to be that kind of prophet. But what can we be and what can we be like with Elijah? It's about God's word being clear to us and being consistent to us. That feature never changes one bit. If God is making a clear message known to you from his word, he wants you to be consistently obedient to that word. And in the consistency of obedience to that word, God wants all of us to realize, do we hear what God says? Will we obey it with immediate obedience? And others... Are they impacted by my life and faith as I am obedient to it? Elijah is not some long-ago, distant, strange, odd person that God chose up to be a hero that none of us could be. Instead, Elijah is lesser than any of us with regard to resources, ability, background, capacity. But if you take all of what we have that's far superior to what Elijah ever had and add to it the same amazing, phenomenal feature that made his life the courageous prophet that he was, the word of God, made clear, demonstrated to be consistent for us. Now, will we just do what Elijah did? Simple, immediate obedience to the word of God. Gentlemen, have a great time in your table talks around your table. And before you go, I'm going to do just one little commercial, if you don't mind. I've written a couple of books recently and a couple of samples up here. And this is, this is me looking at life every day. And do I see God in my routine? That's what this book is all about. When I look at the Word of God and I ask myself, do I see that truth, what God is saying practically for my life for today? That's what this book is about. First and Second Timothy and Titus. This book actually was produced out of the beginning stages of this Bible study years ago. When we started with four guys, and we studied the pastoral epistles, that grew into eight guys, and the eight guys came over here to Houston's first, and it turned into 50 guys. And this is the product of that study. So if you ever are interested in any of these, go to my um, website, brucefong.com. I know that's complicated but brucefog.com, and on the listing there, Books by Bruce, you can get any of these there. Have a great table talk, guys. Great to be back.
Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. Open your hearts and let the